Scripture reading today comes from the book of Hebrews. It's back-to-back days with Hebrews today and yesterday. Hebrews chapter 2, instead of Hebrews chapter 12, which we were in last night. So Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18, where the Holy Scriptures read. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we are delighted to come before you today and celebrate Christmas. Not presents, not family time, not even nice services with nice music and Lord willing, nice preaching, but coming together to celebrate the birth of your son who lived to die and rose again so that we might as well too. So Father, we just pray that this would be a special Christmas for your people, that as we meet together on this Lord's Day to faithfully celebrate and worship you, that we would leave rejoicing, that our hearts would be turned to greater affections for you and not the things of this world, and help us, Lord, to stand faithful against the evil one. For we live in dark times that seem to be getting darker and darker as the days progress. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For we know you came once and that you are soon coming again. So help us to be ready for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When it comes to Christmas as a culture, we have many traditions that we celebrate and share together. It doesn't matter your religion. For the most part, we celebrate presents, Christmas trees, spending time with family, and the giving and exchanging of gifts. However, as Christians, we have even more traditions that we share together that the rest of the culture does not participate in, which obviously includes everything we just said, but it also includes so much more. For example, we spend time together on Christmas Eve celebrating the birth of Christ, and at Eagle's Nest, we do that with a special candlelight Christmas Eve service that helps visualize Jesus, who is the light of the world, who came into our darkness, which we looked at last night as we did just that, looking at the book of Hebrews. We celebrate together with our traditions of singing Christmas hymns, listening to Christmas messages, putting up Christmas decorations, reminding us about Christmas. And the reason we do all this is because all of these meaningful and magical traditions help us develop our imagination and seeing the actual true meaning of Christmas. One of those traditions for my family is going down to Brainerd and visiting the light show at the Arboretum. And when I first heard that word and Becky said, we're going to the Arboretum, I thought that was a fancy restaurant that had deli sandwiches or something, but it's not, (laughs) evidently. And this past week when we were driving through it, it's a big light show basically with lots of different um, Christmas decorations that are lit up. I noticed something interesting that got me thinking about our passage this morning. And what I noticed was that somebody was missing from their nativity scene. I was appalled. How could they not have this person in the nativity scene? And I actually took a picture of it. So maybe you can look at this and figure this out. It's kind of hard to see. 
but it's definitely missing someone. So the question is, who is it missing? Now, to be fair, the person that I'm thinking of actually doesn't show up in any nativity scene, so it's kind of fair that they didn't have him in it. But when we consider the entire Christmas message, this person really should be a part of the nativity scene. Because why? Because Jesus was born into this world to defeat who? Satan. That's right, the devil. And why, church, did Satan need to be defeated? It's because... As our passage this morning tells us, we were in bondage to him and desperately in need of being set free from said bondage. And so if you think about nativity scenes, it actually would make a lot of sense to have it just like that. And then off over in the corner, a Satan type figure standing there overlooking the whole thing, plotting and scheming to try to undo what Christ came to do, which was to save the world. And so this morning, we're going to be answering the question from this text, why was Christ born? And as we just mentioned, well, it's to free us, which leads us to our first point. Christ was born to free us. And in verses 14 and 15, it says this. If you have your Bibles, we're in Hebrews 2, by the way. You can turn there. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15 right now. Here's what they say. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is who? The devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So much of Christmas is centered upon joy. It's centered upon happiness, feasting, and family. And another part of it that it's so focused on is being holly and jolly. That's a big part of the Christmas season, which is totally fine. I'm, nobody here, I don't think, is against being holly and jolly. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. But these are all just one part of what the true meaning of Christmas is about. As we discussed last night from Hebrews chapter 12, though Christmas is absolutely about light, it's also about what else? The darkness the light that came into the darkness. Yes, it's about the birth of a baby in Bethlehem, but it's also then about the darkness as seen through a tyrant and evil ruler. And that ruler is Satan, who is the devil himself. It's not very common to talk about Satan at Christmas, is it? Has anybody ever heard a Christmas message that's focusing on Satan? Probably not. Maybe we should change. Well, we are changing that. Now, why is that not very common? Well, for one, he doesn't really fit in with that holly and jolly stuff, at least not at first glance. And so what we tend to do is focus on the light that came into the world instead of the darkness that ruled it, which is why you never see Satan showing up in a nativity set, lurking off in the corner, mischievously planning his plots and schemes. But the truth is, that is absolutely a part of the Christmas narrative. And think about this just briefly with me for a moment. What schemes was Satan devising at the time? How about against the newborn baby Jesus? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, we read about how the Magi, they came to visit the young, likely toddler age Jesus. And when King Herod, the ruler of that land, found out, was he happy about it? No, he was murderously angry. And so Herod devised a wicked and satanic plan then to kill all of the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old and under in order to try to stop the newborn king. And who then, let me ask you, was behind this satanic plan? And it's not a trick question. Satan, right? The devil. 
As we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, if you've been here through our study throughout that, when the religious leaders opposed Jesus, whose bidding were they doing according to Jesus? Satan's. Absolutely. In John's gospel, he says this to them. Jesus says to the religious leaders who opposed him, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Ever since Genesis chapter three, when humanity fell into sin, we've been in bondage to Satan. We've been in bondage to this cruel murdering liar is what the Bible tells us. And if we're going to be freed from his bondage, somebody who's stronger than him is going to have to subdue him in order to defeat him and set us free. And that's precisely why Christ was born. He came into the darkness to free the prisoners of darkness. In our day and age, we tend to think about the idea of the devil as being a bit archaic, right? Like a little bit um, superstitious, maybe a bit primitive. Like, come on, okay, I can believe in God, but you're really gonna tell me there's a devil with you know, horns and a pitchfork? Well, I'm not particular, as Lewis, C.S. Lewis said about the horns and the pitchfork, but there absolutely is a devil. But we tend to view him in our culture as sort of this boogeyman type figure that parents make up to scare their, children's, their children into not stealing, into doing the right things and do more good things, right? But the fact is, if we ignore the devil's existence, how well are we going to do at fending off his attacks? Because as Ephesians 6 tells us, we need to put on the armor of God because we face an adversary whose name is the devil. And if, you're in, if you've ever done any boxing before, if you're not putting your hands up to defend yourself, what's going to happen? You're going to get your clock cleaned. And that's exactly what happens spiritually if we are not on edge keeping our defensive, defenses up, up to fend off the devil. And so ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've been in bondage under his dominion. And the Bible talks about, it's not just Satan, but it's his demonic forces. And it doesn't just talk about them a little bit. It talks about them a lot of bit, a whole lot of bit. And what does it tell us? It tells us that he tempts us, as we just mentioned in Genesis chapter three, as he did with Adam and Eve. But it also tells us that we're born into bondage under his dominion because he is the God of this world. Okay, that needs some explanation, right? We thought we all believe there's one God. There's not many gods. But why does the Bible say Satan is the God of this world? Now, make no mistake here, Christ is the sovereign Lord of the universe, period, full stop. However, right now, in this tiny little place in the universe we call Earth, Satan is presently in control and ruling. He has full jurisdiction. Well, not full. He has jurisdiction right now over it. And the Bible tells us that though Christ crushed Satan's head on the cross, on the cross Satan, like a slowly dying snake, is still at large, you know, withering about, doing his thing, as his, but his death is ensured. It is coming. And so make no mistake, Satan is ferocious. He is angry. He knows his, not, his time is absolutely short. And so he is after anyone he can who resembles God. And as creatures made in God's image, that puts us as the prime target. As Christians, if we aren't careful, we can get caught up in the holly jolly secular sentimentality of Christmas, and we can start to think that Christmas is just a whole lot better if we just focus on that instead of upon Christ and the full Christmas message. We might cherry pick parts out of it that make us feel good and fits with that sentimentality approach, but this is not a good approach. And we tend to believe this way, even as Christians, because that's the lie our culture is constantly telling us to believe. 
For instance, this past week, I was reading reading an article in The Guardian which said, Christmas comes with good cheer. The tragedy of it is the religious garbage. Don't know if this author doesn't realize the Christ part of Christmas, what's that about, but somebody will hopefully tell him. But the writer goes on to explain then how she loves celebrating Christmas, but she can't wait to see how the, because she's talking about how society is moving further away from the religious garbage, as she calls it. And she can't wait to see, wait to see the religious part fade away entirely. And why? Well, she goes on to quote, and here's what she says. She longs to celebrate any decline in superstition, any rise in those who look life and death in the eye with no expectation of anything beyond this world. There's a hope. But here's the thing. If Christ is not born, we are still under the bondage of sin, death, and Satan is the one who holds the keys. If Christ is not born, then we are his abused children who have no hope of any sort of adoption by any loving father whatsoever. And yet so many are deluded by Satan's lies into thinking that there is no life beyond the grave. This life is it. You got one ride, enjoy yourself. Sounds a whole lot like Koheleth from Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? If you've been a part of that study, no judgment, no wrath, no eternal imprisonment. And so, yes, as Christians, we must speak loudly into a world of naive, ignorant sentimentality and proclaim the birth of Christ along with the freedom that he brings from a very real spiritual enemy, which is Satan, the devil. But if we're embarrassed by this truth, if we ignore this truth, how much are we going to speak of it? Probably not very much, right? However, make no mistake about it, If you speak of a real Satan, of a real hell, of a real legion of demonic forces who oppose humanity and want to see nothing other than humanity damned to hell forever, forever, you will be mocked and you will be ridiculed. You'll be thought of as some superstitious, primitive person. But nevertheless, it's true. It is absolutely true. And so as followers of Christ, we must proclaim that Christ was born to not just to make us holly and jolly through sentimentality come every December 25th, but to set us free from bondage from a terrible and cruel taskmaster. Christ came to save us sojourners who, as Isaiah 9 mentions, were walking in a prison of deep darkness. And so through Jesus, we can be set free. This is why John 8.36 says this, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is a wonderful verse. A wonderful verse. If you're looking for a life verse, that might be the one you want to go with. That's a great verse. If we do not recognize the darkness of this world and the bondage that we are in, we will not understand our need for the light that came into the darkness in order to save us. And once we have been freed, if we do not tell others about their spiritual bondage, why on earth would they listen to the message of the good news? If there is no bad news, why do you need the good news? It's not good news. It's okay news. It's sentimental. It's sentimental news is what it is. It's not good news. It's only good news if the bad news is next to it. And so we must go tell it on the mountain. Go tell the good news along with the bad news over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. He's the light who came into the darkness to set us free. He was born to save us by destroying the works of the devil and the power of sin and death, which reign over us. I'm not sure if you've ever thought of it this way, but you probably have. But 
do you realize that after humanity sinned and, and joined Satan's rebellion against him, that God didn't declare war on us? He, he certainly could have, but he didn't. Instead, what did he do? He did not declare war on us, but on the one who deceived us and became our spiritual captor. And so, yes, Christmas is a message of joy to the world because Jesus Christ is born, but it is a joy because God sent his one and only son to conquer the gates of hell and set us prisoners free. This is why we sing, he comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. And so here's another thing to think about. If you as Christians even, can you neglect Satan, our adversary? He's not, our, he, he's not the warden. He doesn't have jurisdiction over us, but he's certainly our enemy. Can you neglect him as a Christian? Absolutely you can. And we see this in churches all the time. Little problems become massive problems when we, when we forget that there's a spiritual element to all this. When there's conflict within a church, it's not just an intellectual chess match with people disagreeing and trying to come to the conclusion. There is a spiritual element at play that is trying to divide the body of Christ to have pride enter the equation and get us to start thinking, man, these people are idiots. How are they not on my level? And if you're honest, we all struggle with that. We absolutely do. But the antidote to that is one, the gospel, but the bad news which is also a part of the gospel, which reminds us that we face not flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the darkness of hell itself. Not only did Christ come to destroy the curse and set us free, which is good news on its own, but Christ then also, after he set us free, came to restore us, which leads us to our second point. There we go. Look at verses 16 through 17 with me. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he being Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, and here's a $25 word, propitiation for the sins of the people. Not only did Christ free us from bondage by paying for our sins, as verse 17 talks about, But he he then went on to become our merciful and faithful high priest before God. See, in the Old Testament, the way this worked is they had priests back then, and the priests would stand there as the middleman or the intermediary between God and man. But there was just one major serious problem with this. And what was it? Though they were priests, like all of the rest of humanity, they were sinners too who they themselves needed a priest to stand as an intermediary between them and God. And so what did God do about this problem? In Christ, God became one of us. Why? So that he could become the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins, which is what that word propitiation is talking about. But he also did this, as this verses here tell us, in order to become our perfect high priest whom we can go to directly. He can stand there. He has no sin. He does not need a priest himself, for he is perfect and holy. And he can do this as our great high priest because he is both God and man. And so he is the perfect intermediary, the perfect middleman to have between us and God. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this, He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that is, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the garden, our, our relationship with God was severed, which led not only to our physical death, but to our spiritual death, which physical death is but a picture of that. However, in Bethlehem, God's son, the very king of the universe, was born into the world so that you and I could be born anew and live as the children of God in perfect relationship with him, which is what the Bible calls the second birth. And so if you're here this morning and you're living under the bondage of death, living under the bondage of hell's forces, you need to hear the Christmas message. And not just the sentimentality part of the Christmas message. You need to hear the full Christmas message, the good news along with the bad news. Because of Christmas, and it's this, God and sinner can be reconciled through Jesus who won the battle that you and I could never win. And because of this, we sing, as we just did a moment ago, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And so this wonderful Christmas morning, we celebrate our Savior who was born to die so that we can be born again to live for eternity with him. And when you think about it, there is no greater comfort than this, is there? No greater comfort. This is a comfort that is so much greater than any holly and jolly Christmas sentimentality can bring, is it not? This leads us to our final point. Not only was Christ born to free us and restore us, but he was also born third to comfort us. Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me ask you a question. If you're experiencing suffering or loss, who would you rather talk to? Somebody who has never experienced what you are experiencing or somebody who has? Somebody who doesn't have a clue about what it is you're going through or somebody that can look you in the eyes and say, I get it. I've been there. Boy, is that hard. I think the answer here is obvious. You would obviously rather talk to a counselor who knows what you're going through, who has direct experience with what you're going through. There's nothing like shared experience that brings about empathy and understanding towards one another. This is why with war veterans, uh, if you've ever noticed this, when they meet even for the first time, they almost have an immediate connection, an immediate sense of compassion and empathy and understanding for one another, even if they just met. And this is actually a very interesting thing because the more I do the Christian journey, the more I realize that there's that same bond and special connection with other Christians. Sometimes if Becky and I are on a flight, this happened our last time we were on a flight together and there's a lady sitting next to us and we got talking and found out she was a a Christian and everything. And there was just a special connection just right there on the spot because of that shared experience, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with this in mind, verse 18 tells us something remarkable. It tells us that one of the reasons Christ was born was so that he could help us in our struggles. 
And so the message of Christmas isn't that God sent us an angel or a prophet or a human priest who can empathize and understand and aid us in our suffering. It's this, it's that God himself became one of us, which is why we call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you realize that God knows more about the pain of your experiences than you do? You ever thought about that before? He knows more about the pain and suffering of this world than even you do as a sinner who feels it on a daily basis. Christ knows the pain of unforgiveness. He knows the pain of suffering, the pain of loss that we all feel. And why? Because he went through it himself. He went through of all of it for us, to free us, to restore us, and then to serve as our great high priest who can uniquely comfort us in times and ways that nobody else can. And so whatever chapter in your life that you're in, even if it's a difficult chapter in your life, if it's the most trying time in your redemption story, know this, Christ is there as a comfort for you, waiting to comfort for you if you would but go to him. He is there to bring you safely through the valley of suffering and the hardship that he's already walked through. In Psalm 23, I want to read this for us. It says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He comforts us. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why is it that Christ can be our good shepherd who guides us through even the valley of the shadow of death? It's because he's already passed through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's come out into resurrected life on the opposite side of it. And so this means that when Christ is our shepherd, we can have a great comfort in knowing that death is no longer our enemy. It's been defeated. And so death is but a shadow that we pass through. Can shadows hurt you? No. They might scare you a little bit, but they're not going to hurt you. They can't. Not at all. Not really. And so the message of Christmas is that Jesus defeated our enemy, Satan, death, and hell. Which means that when your story, your redemption story on earth is through, you can have great comfort in knowing that you, just like Jesus Christ himself, will be resurrected into new life to reign with him forever in glory. Christmas, then, is so much more than heartwarming sentimentality. It is so much more. It's about the glorious redemption of God's lost prodigal sons and daughters whom he guides home not only to be with him, but to rule and reign with him. How? Well, just as we are freely given and accept gifts to one another on Christmas morning, our redemption story, our redemption itself, comes freely as we accept it by grace through faith in Jesus. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Notice it doesn't say that whoever is very moral. Whoever goes to church every Sunday, though you should do that for the record. It doesn't say those who serve the church faithfully. Another thing we should do. It it says what? Whoever believes in him. What does that mean to believe? It means to hear the bad news, which is what? You are a sinner 
separated from God, who will one day stand before the intense fear, awe-striking glory of God and be rejected and condemned for your sin in an eternity of hell. But if you repent and turn of your sin and trust in Christ, all of that can be washed away. You can be white as snow. This is the gospel. This is the Christmas message. And so that's what that means when it says, whoever believes, repent of your sin, turn away from the things of this world, from the God of this world, who's the devil, and trust in Christ for your righteousness. Don't try to make yourself righteous before God. You cannot do that. It is impossible. Our righteousness can no more stop a falling rock than a spider web, or our righteousness can no more stop God's judgment than a spider web can stop a falling rock. There we go. It can't. So you can spin this little web of morality, this little web of righteousness for even if you live to be 105 years old and at the end, God's wrath is gonna crash through that thing like a freight train. I don't care if you're Mother Teresa. It's gonna hit it all the same. It's not gonna slow it down for even half a second. And so John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, he saw our inability to free ourselves from Satan, to live the life that we should live, a perfect and righteous life. And so what did he do? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. And that's talking about an eternity in hell, but have what instead? Eternal life. And so this Christmas season, I ask you, do you want more than just temporary sentimentality that our culture points us to when Christmas shows up every December 25th? Do you want the true joy that Christmas brings? Then humble yourself. Humble yourself and recognize you need a savior just like I do, just like everyone does, and accept God's gift of salvation and then live gloriously in it, realizing why Christ was born. And he was born to free us from Satan's power, to restore us, and to finally comfort us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message, for this text, which is powerful. And mostly we just thank you for the truth that lies behind it, which is as sinners, we fall short of your glory. And one day, so very soon, we will stand before you and it will be a terrifying thing for sinners to stand in the presence of a holy God. No amount of moral living, no amount of religious observance will be able to make ourselves wholly clean before you. It is only the blood of Christ which washes us white as snow. And so, Father, I pray for the one here today who might be trusting in themselves, thinking that they are a pretty good person. But the reality is you don't grade on a curve. You expect absolute perfection. And we know that that is impossible on our own. So we look to Christ who lived the perfect life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserved. And by your grace and mercy and love, as we trust in him, we know that we can experience the second birth, be born anew, and know that one day soon, though even if death faces us, that we will pass through it like a shadow and experience resurrected life for you for all of eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.